Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. In this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Taryn Gore. Uh, Taryn, as many of you will know, was the co-founder of Cafoodle, and we're going to talk all about that uh, and what that app uh, and that business is doing to help people with food and food allergies, but all of that to come. But I just want to start, Taryn, by asking you, how did you first get inspired to go into the world of food? Well, firstly, Mark, thank you so much for having me. Um, And my main inspiration would probably come from my mum. So I grew up back home in South Africa, as I'm sure you can hear, um, and food and wine is quite a big part of our culture, um, not just barbecues. And my mum is actually a qualified cordon bleu chef and used to do a lot of luncheons. So I, I remember growing up trying a whole variety of different foods and from the age of three being told um, to keep quiet at a table in a restaurant whilst being allowed to sit at the adult's table. So I think it was very much my upbringing um, that didn't necessarily mean I was going to end up in hospitality, but gave me quite an early appreciation for, for good food and company. So what did you study at school? Um, well, I was going to study psychology um, and then I was going to study law, but I realized that both of those degrees took a long time um, and I wanted to travel. So when I went to uni, uh, I actually just went to the guidance counselor and asked what was the shortest degree that would please my parents and maybe give me a future and ended up studying what at the time was marketing unfortunately mainly in print which has been no use whatsoever since Facebook was invented um, so I did a, a Bachelor of Arts in marketing and film. And then when you were at school tell me you're a you're a great entrepreneur now did you have an entrepreneurial spirit at school? I did um, I try to persuade people to pay me to teach them how to horse ride um, and I used to rent out my pony um, at the local fair um, to pay for its board with my parents. Um, so I think my, both my parents, I'm very lucky, work for themselves um, and, and always have. So there was definitely an element and so did my grandparents and my uncles. So I come from quite a, a long line of people who've done their own jewelry businesses, property businesses. So I think it was very much bred into me not, um, not to have a boss and that my parents didn't have bosses and could do what they liked to an extent. Um, so I think once again, that was very culturally something I, I wanted to do in the long run is I knew I wanted to do my own thing one day. And so you obviously took your degree 
And, mm -hmm. and then what happened then? Uh, well, whilst I was studying, I, I was saving up to travel um, and ended up and started kind of in pot wash in a restaurant because um, I was doing A-level, so I was 16 uh, and started and knew I wanted to travel. So I started washing dishes in a restaurant, happened to be a seafood restaurant, um, which resulted in me by the end of uni kind of being in the senior management for a Nobu uh, subsidiary. Um, and and basically then when I said, oh, I want to go to London and I want to go travel around Europe, they said, well, why don't you come across, if you come across to London, come and work for us in one of the restaurants uh, and then you can take time off and save up and, and get the visas, which is exactly what I did. So I ended up getting a highly skilled visa with them through my degree and the offer of a management position in London. And then I moved across to London back in 2006 now. So you went straight into the world of food with Nobu, great business, uh, and you ended up in London. So tell us about that, because for a lot of people, that thought of leaving home, I know that lots of people from South Africa and New Zealand and Australia do that, but it's not really that common for people in the UK. So there you are, you finish your degree, you're in your early 20s, uh, you've been offered a placement with Nobu, they've said come to London. What was that like, getting off the plane, finding somewhere to live, going to start work in a new country? Um, it was it was pretty tough. Uh, I won't lie. I think I was lucky enough to have quite a cushy upbringing. I mean, my parents are fair, but I think um, that the quality of life in the beginning and going from having quite a nice flat in Cape Town to being in a house share with six other people in West Ferry, which is was back then the wrong side of Canary Wharf, let's be honest. Um, was was quite a huge adjustment. Um, you know, the exchange rate at the time I was lucky was 10 to 1, but now it's 22 to 1. Um, and actually, I didn't end up staying at Nobu for very long um, just because the management style and it, it was kind of very upmarket um, off of Mayfair and wasn't quite suited to my temperament, if I'm honest. Um, so it was tough. And I think it's an adventure. And I think if people can do it, do it. Um, I, it wasn't so much a gap year for me. Um, I did just end up working and I was lucky that I had a few British friends over here, but the main kind of swarm of South Africans came a year or two after I came. Um, but I think it, it is tough and I think it's, it's managing the expectations. Um, I think for me, it was understanding what rent I could have paid, could afford to pay, um, where I would be living and budgeting. I mean, I think, uh, I was lucky that my parents had probably instilled some good discipline in me growing up. But I think, you know, having to pay rent and electricity, and back then I think the house share had that meter, so everyone pulled all their coins at the end of every Friday to make sure you had electricity for the weekend. Um, and hospitality was incredible. I mean, I didn't, I, I was convinced I was going to go and work for BDO or be in advertising and have this amazing marketing career. Um, but London was just addictive and you you know walking into a restaurant and you would have you know at one stage I think we had 32 different nationalities in our team at D&D London and you know we had people who literally had got scholarships to go study at Stanford but were still running the restaurants because they just loved it um, and it was meeting people for the, you know Cape Town is cosmopolitan but it's also a bit of a, a bubble to an extent. I mean, it's got better. But coming over here and having people who were Brazilian and Polish and Portuguese and Spanish and Italian and French, um, and you all finishing work at 2 a.m. and going into Soho to grab a drink, it was 
it was it was amazing um i mean people say it's the same in new york enough but i think london was just addictive and and even though obviously they were tough days for you when you first came over and and as you said you didn't feel you didn't feel that you fitted inside that particular organization at that time were you still sure that hospitality was right for you Oh no, absolutely not. Um, I think I became someone's personal assistant in a um, in a hotel for a bit. I I did a whole range of different things. I think where I naturally where it naturally felt right and ended up just working was was in hospitality. I think it took me till the age of about 20, so about four or five years um, until I kind of got it up into senior management where I thought, actually, I really enjoy doing this and I can live a good life doing this. And, but I think, and still to this day, I do feel like hospitality doesn't get the recognition it should as a proper career choice. And I do think as much as I love my parents and my brother, who is a banker, um, I did get asked quite a lot when I was going to get a proper job. Um, and even though I was working in an office in Soho and yes, some of the hours are crazy, but it was in theory, Monday to Friday, nine to five as management, you know, a lot of people would say, but when are you, when are you going to do a proper job? No one stays in hospitality. Um, and I think that's quite tough. And I think that's still quite tough for a lot of people today when they do choose to do it because they love it, whether it's a hotel manager, a head waiter, a bar manager, it's sometimes not considered to be a proper career. And, and you said that that first role wasn't quite the right fit for you. And I think there are a lot of people who go into a job and they stay in it, even though it's not a good fit, because they think, well, you know, it's work, it's earning money. So just don't talk us through why that first role wasn't the right fit. And then about a role that you took on that was the right fit and why it was the right fit for you. So I think um, a lot of it was, if I'm completely honest with myself, when I first got off the boat and the accent is still strong, um, I just felt that I was overwhelmed. Um, it, it was a really tough establishment. Um, I, it was for me, it was just stuff around, you know, work attire, which I completely get, but, you know, having to have 20 denier tights and court shoes that are 1.5 inches high and, the shade of red lipstick. It's probably why I didn't end up in hotels, if I'm honest. Um, it, it just felt far too structured for me. And I also felt like at the time, the entire management of that job were also um, very, very British and very, very male, um, despite it being an international company that it, I, I don't know, I just, I feel like I felt quite out of place. And because Although I'd come over, the highly skilled visa sat with me. So once again, it's all about luck, I think, to an extent, where I could change jobs. Uh, I had thought, oh, well, if I don't get another job, I have spent the last five years saving, so I can just go travel for a few months um, and then come back and you know get a season job. So I don't think I had the pressure of must be in the right job, must have the right career, must work my way up. I was kind of like, oh, this isn't really that fun, and this is supposed to be a gap year. And then actually, uh, my brother was like, oh, I'm going to go travel around South America. You should come. And, and I thought, okay, great, I'll quit. And then I actually quit. And the week before I was supposed to go traveling around South America for six months, got offered an incredible job with a company that uh, is still very close to my heart, which is D&D &D London. 
and it's one of the largest independent groups and the team are very international senior management from all over the world fantastic owners uh, terence conran was actually just selling out at the time to david and des and there was a lot of exciting stuff going on and it actually I never traveled, I never did the big traveling because I just fell so in love with this company and kind of stayed there for the next eight to 10 years on and off. Um, and then, but then in 2008, we had the financial crisis and that had a huge impact on hospitality. So do you remember that looking back and the impact that it had? I do. I mean, I think we were really lucky in the fact that it didn't it did affect the day-to-day -day spend of the city restaurants um however we had other venues that did a lot of weddings and birthdays and there was still there was still a few events but i definitely remember it being quite a bleak time um and just the average what we would call the average spend per head in a restaurant completely decreasing and there being I mean i won't know but i do remember one one day phoning up the reservations team to just see what the reservations were like for the Saturday night. And I think it was, it was a 250-seater restaurant that had 10 people in for dinner. And I just think, you know, they were, I think the company were amazing at the contingency plans they had in place. And I hope I've brought some of that into the current pandemic we're going through. But, you know, it was kind of like, what can you close on a Sunday and Monday? Where can you save money? How can you push people to actually, we've only got 10 bookings this Saturday. Do you want to come next Saturday and we'll close the restaurants? Or... So I think um, it was definitely quite a tough time just because there wasn't as much a liquidity in London as, as we needed. I mean, to be honest, even with what we're going through at the moment, there's still more cash in the actual um, environment when, in London than there was back in 2008. We just ran out of cash. Whereas I think we're better positioned now as, as a city to survive it when it all bounces back or as it all bounces back. And so... Everything was going swimmingly for you. You were doing very well. You were growing your career. And then in 2014, uh, along with Kim, you set up uh, Kafoodle. So how did that come about? How did you move into tech and food? So I want to be quite careful here because I think if I'd stayed in hospitality, it would have been an amazing career. And I like to think that I would still be with companies like D&D London. However, I met Kim back in 2009, so just after the crash, as you mentioned, and she'd actually tried to sell me an app when I was working at D&D London. She had this notion of everyone wanting to use their mobiles to book tables and see menus. And, and at the time, I just, we just weren't, we didn't have a budget. And I thought, well, no, people aren't going to do that. And I don't really like apps. And who's going to have the app of 36 different restaurants on their phone? Um, but what I did like was Kim. Um, I thought she was phenomenal. Um, she had done stuff I had only ever dreamed of doing. Um, and she was very tech savvy, whereas I was very people orientated and food orientated. And basically what actually formed was just a friendship where she would keep trying to sell me apps every now and again, because that's just what she does. Um, and I'd keep trying to pick her brains on how we should better use technology in what we do, um, even with advanced Excel spreadsheets. And basically that evolved into um, me actually buying my own pub uh, in 2000 and, oh, I won't get the dates right, but about 2011 and 12. 
um, and me actually asking for help on how to um, do a very complicated spreadsheet because I couldn't find a system that was helping me manage uh, my food costs correctly. And one, one of the things that I'd become quite passionate about over the time was the healthy eating trend. And I had this vision of being a pub that could compete with the press and the healthy eating um, of the world. And Kim, Kim helped, but as it evolved, she kind of kept nagging me as to if there was this gap in the market, why didn't we build it? Um, which to me just seemed absolutely absurd. But I ended up consulting um, for Caesars Entertainment who were actually building software that, to track everything around food and gaming. And the more I got involved in building it, I realized that actually building technology is not as impossible as people think. And basically Kim and I had a, had a coffee in early 2014 and decided to do it. And by then I was actually selling the pub because healthy eating in pubs was not working. And it was far and it was before Exmouth Market was nearly as cool as it is right now. Um, and it just felt like the right time to do something a little bit different and crazy. So you've met Kim, you've recognized there's this sort of gap uh, around an app, you've moved out of your pub, but how did you, how did you, what made you found uh, Foodle at that time in 14. So what brought all those pieces together for you to say, this is now what I'm going to dedicate my time to? I think there was um, a belief around the main allergen legislation. So the reason for 2014 was in December of that year, we had the EU FIC legislation come out, which is the 14 allergens. So when a lot of people go out to eat and you now have to be told about gluten and soya, um, that legislation was coming to effect in the December. Kim's husband had a, has a severe sesame allergy um, and had had an incident the year before. And Kim was, Kim was the main driver of it. She was incredibly passionate about we needed to make the world safer for consumers. And now the government was getting behind making the world safer for consumers. So she was going to do this no matter what. And I think I, I got caught up in the kind of excitement around it, but also in the practical of that's great, but how are you actually going to get the restaurants to give you the information? And how are chefs actually going to cope with this new legislation? And I think I basically did in 2000, I mean, we spent a lot of time in 2014 throwing the idea around and speaking to a lot of businesses and chefs about how they were going to cope with it. And I think that all culminated in going, okay, this validates there's a need for simple to use software that helps people do this and can then communicate it out to consumers what is in their food. So I think all of those factors together culminated in us forming Cafudo in 2014, but actually only launching in 2015. So for everybody listening, uh, what's clear to see from your history is that early on through your mum and being in Cape Town, you got this love for food. You then worked for uh, numerous different restaurants in hospitality, and you gained lots of experience about food and how restaurants work uh, and people and people management. You then had Kim, who made you think a different way about technology. So all these pieces are coming together for you to launch this amazing app and business to help people understand what allergens are in food and, and make sure that they're eating safely and, and healthily. 
Um, but now, here you are, 2015, you've launched the app, you're on your own, you're a tech entrepreneur. What's that like? How does that feel different to what you've done before? Um, to be honest, the first year was tough. And there was a huge high around it because we were doing it. Um, one of our, we had angel investment and we were building the tech, but I was completely out of my own depth. I think I'd never built a product before. We spent a lot of 2015 building the actual product. Um, and it's probably just my experience, but at the time everyone was going on about, um, you know, the Silicon Valley of London, you know, the Silicon roundabout being old street. we got an office like 300 meters from old street through friends. Um, there was this whole tech startup scene and everyone was building these multi-million pound companies and everyone was talking about their big exit um, and what it meant to be a tech entrepreneur. And I think we were still just trying to build a product. I think I wasn't young, so I have no excuse, but I think I was incredibly naive um, as to what it actually meant to be a tech entrepreneur. And I think a lot of the narrative around at that time wasn't about tech for good or purpose-driven companies. It was all about who's going to be the next Facebook. So let's pick that apart because I know there'll be people listening to this who will look at you and what you've got now and will think, you know what, I've got a great idea for an app or I think I can do something in food. So I'd just like you to talk a little about, you talk about angel investment. So how do you get the money to do this stuff? Um, and then on a day-to-day -day basis, what, what were the things that were keeping you awake at night, if anything ever did keep you awake at night? So talk about money and then talk about the operational side of things and the challenges that you face as an entrepreneur. So raising money, we've now done three times um, in the company. The, the first time is, is quite often the hardest, but I think angel investors are the best route. So I think having a business plan and I've always been quite conservative and I think really understanding and validating what you're doing and then going out and speaking to people, um, ideally, obviously, angel investors in your sector or it, people who are advanced in your sector or senior in your sector that, that you're thinking of going into that might want to invest. Um, there is still money in London, even at the moment. I and mean, there's money in the, in the world. Um, and I think a really good idea that can be strongly validated does get funding. Um, and we were lucky. It was actually Kim's co-founder from another company and friend who was our angel investment that came in to just get us started at the beginning. Um, and I think it's, for me, it was about being conservative, really working out how much money did you need to get to an MVP, raising that money, and then putting your head down and building the MVP. Um, and then if you'd like to go through the rest of it, we then did a seed stage in 2018. Um, which was to further fund us. And then we've just finished our first kind of VC round to now scale us. So it's, it's a pretty standard model of angel seed. We didn't actually do a series A now, we did a follow on seed just because we haven't hit the revenues that we'd hoped to. Um, but I think it's a lot of pitching. Um, and the amount of time I speak to my founder friends is the amount of times you have to stand up and pitch in your company and get beaten down or get really interesting questions, we call them, or good questions. Um, 
you've just got to do it because eventually someone will invest. And if someone won't invest, then I think sometimes you need to think about what the pivot is. And when you say that, what do you mean by what the pivot is? So Cafudo is an example, right? Um, we did our seed round. We actually got Innovate UK funding in 2016, which is a grant funding for those people listening. And I say it's a pivot, but we obviously started very much as allergens. You know, we, we very much wanted the, the EU legislation and the allergens. And then after an incident in hospital with one of my family members, I kind of... and we kind of had never thought about the healthcare sector, for instance, we were very much casual dining. And sorry, after that incident in hospital, I realized that actually there was an entire sector that didn't have it sorted uh, and actually needed stuff like nutrition and healthy eating. And actually we could be so much bigger um, and we could, we could really, really look at how to combat healthy eating and, and NCDs and the rise of obesity and all of these really big problems that can be solved with a simple solution. So we, we did pivot. Um, we, we went very much into healthcare. You know, we got an Innovate grant to really spend two years how validating how we could use our software in environments like care homes and hospitals um, and the aging population to look at malnourishment. And now we do it in schools to look at obesity levels and really looked at how we could look at food in its whole and how we could look at food information in its entirety from costs to nutrition to allergens um, and communicate that to people to see how we can influence decision making. So there's a great lesson there about being flexible, looking for opportunities as you go, adapting what you're building, being open-minded enough to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think every, I always say this, I think every startup in the beginning is incredibly scrappy. And you, you have to chase the money because you're trying to make money in the beginning. And it's then nice when A, something works, or you can settle down and start to really think about the bigger strategy of where the company is going and not always trying to chase the next check. And in terms of um, having enough money, you talked about having a, an MVP, a minimal viable product. Um, if somebody out there is thinking, oh, I want to build an app, how much money do they have to go and raise from an angel fund or uh, family and friends to be able to get an app that's an MVP? Um, it completely depends on the complexity of the application. I mean, we are a compliance system. So we're a huge back-end software for kitchen management that then feeds out data to apps and communications. So we needed quite a bit because of the compliance system. However, I have friends who've built MVPs for less than 25,000 pounds um, and taken it out to market and just got people to test it. I mean, to be honest, had I done it again, my MVP would have been an Excel spreadsheet. And I just would have seen how people interacted with it. So you could probably do all of that before even raising money and take that to your angels to raise money. And then when you go and you pitch for money, had you ever done that before? No, I mean, I think in my industry, when I'd done event management, you kind of always try and sell your venue. But I think I really struggled because I'd always sold something tangible. You know, someone walks into a restaurant and they want to eat there or they want to have their wedding there or they want to buy that burger. It's something they can see, feel, smell, taste. Selling software that you haven't even built yet is basically selling vapor. You're selling air. And that, that's really tough. Um, and not, not knowing it. I mean, you can ask me most things about 
French cooking and I know, I know what it is. And, but, you know, you asked me what codes, what language something was written in and whether we had a full stack developer and the terminology was very new to me. So I think it, it was very nerve wracking. And then a lot of people listening to this may well have watched um, Dragon's Den. And you get the dragons there saying, uh, I, I want 90% of your company for a thousand pounds. So when it came to all of that, how did you manage all of that? How did you understand that? I didn't. I, I asked people. I asked anyone that would speak to me. Um, I gathered a group of mentors. I found other founders. I found people who'd done it before. And I just had, I would buy anyone that would let me a cup of coffee. Um, and I just learned on the job. I read Slicing the Pie, which I think everyone does. It didn't really help me. I, don't, I, I spoke to people. And then I think I sat down and in my head, I looked at if I took away all the noise, what was my number? So why was I doing this? Why did I want to keep doing this? And what did that look like? So it was more about the strategy of the company. So could I give away 90% of the company for a thousand pounds? Absolutely. But then what would that look like if I did another fund round or if I wanted to make any decisions in the company or if someone or what my vision was? And I think it was, it was looking at that and actually looking at what we say is the cap table, which is your shareholdings and how you wanted that to fall out over the next three years. And then just being reasonable. I mean, evaluation of a company is literally how much someone is willing to pay it's the same as selling a house someone's going to walk in and love it and they'll be willing to pay for it you've just got to find that person and then turning to the operational challenges um which have got to be obviously different from everything that you'd experienced before talk us through the highs and lows of that so I think when you asked originally what keeps me up at night, it's the same that it was five years ago. It's, it's revenues, it's sales, it's, it's being responsible for people's salaries uh, and, and staff members and culture. Um, I think operations are, are tough. I think hiring startups are tough. You know, a, a tech startup is tough. And I think hiring people who want to do it and who can do it are, are very different um getting the culture right is hard and it's changes you know when you're three people it's you know literally when it was kim and i and a developer culture wasn't a problem like we all sat in a shoebox and we're with each other every day and now it's kind of 19 people and it's there's you've got to worry about culture and you've got to worry about people feeling heard and getting involved in the day-to-day -day operations of you know, have we made enough sales? What is our cash flow looking like? What does our forecast look like? What is our, you know, OKRs, our KPIs? You know, what are the metrics that we're measuring against? What do the shareholders want to see? It's, um, it's handling all the calls, the complaints. Um, and I think for me personally, it, it was the hiring. It's, it's the managing of the team and making, making sure that people are all there for the right reasons. I think before I did this, um, whenever someone spoke to me about mission, vision, and values, I would just say, I, I don't believe in fluff. Um, whereas now five years on, it's the core of why everyone comes to work every day. And if it's not aligned throughout the company, the day-to-day -day operations become impossible because we don't work as a team. Um, and I think, I think as a startup founder, there, there are two categories. There's the startup founder that's definitely been there and done it. 
um, and is on their seventh exit and just is incredible. And then they're the first timers who feel like a fraud the entire time. And every time you get asked a question, you think, oh God, I really don't know the answer, but you're still looking at me and you're not going to stop looking at me. So I'm going to make something up and then phone a friend. Um, and I think all what I've kind of turned on to is I honestly don't know. I thought this is why I've hired you. So let's work it out together. Um, and I think it just depends on your approach. I think um, I'm really lucky with the people I have around me and the experience I have around me of people who, who've done it, who, who want to do it, who want to prove that they can do it and who, who care. Um, but I think operationally, the scariest thing for me is just the fact that I haven't done this before. You know, I, I haven't exited a B2B SaaS company before. Um, and every day is a new curveball, if I'm honest, and every day is is learning. But I think when we talk about happiness, if that's what if that's what makes you happy and if that's what motivates you, then it's a fantastic position to be in, even if it is still really scary. So let's find out if you are happy. I know that you've done the um, the workplace happiness survey. Can I ask you what you scored? I scored eighty nine percent, which is remarkably high. I thought so, although it did say it was 5% lower than others. Ah, so um, which areas uh, were you highest in and, and which areas was there some scope for you to be happier at work? As the CEO, I, I was highest in the empowerment and job satisfaction because I think obviously the buck stops with me when it comes to empowerment and I've written my own job description. So those were the two that I scored highest in. Um, my lowest, according to the survey, was around reward and recognition. So obviously, I, I need a boss that can pat me on the back um, and, and well-being. So I think my work-life balance might need a little bit more working on. Well, I, I think that's pretty typical of entrepreneurs. So uh, what normally comes across, as you said, is this great sense of pride and empowerment in what you're doing and what you're building but then uh, you are on your own to a large extent. So it's harder to get that reward and recognition piece. Um, but in so many other uh, aspects, obviously it's a hugely rewarding thing to do. So overall, you're, you're happy. So would you do it again? Yes. I think that's the first time I've said that after doing your, the survey, because I always thought never again. Um, but I would, and I think I would do it differently, which is why you learn. Um, but I think if it's something that you want to do, being an entrepreneur is, will make you happy, no matter what that is, whether it's a small company out of your kitchen or a tech startup, I think, um, I think it's something that you're born to do, right? So everybody will now want to know what you would do differently. Oh, everything. Everything. I mean, I would, I would literally still be working out of my kitchen. And that's not just because we're in a pandemic. It's just because I would have delayed getting office spaces. I would have not hired people that I did hire so quickly. Um, I would have validated the product more. I would have had way more realistic KPIs in the first year. Um, and I think I would have thought a bit harder about what I was doing to begin with. Um, and that's great to say in hindsight, but unfortunately I do think um, when it's your first time, learning on the job is just part of the package. It's just what has to happen. And I think as long as you can 
take a step back on the days when you are literally crying into a pizza um, and say, well, hang on. Yeah, it was a tough day, but what did I learn today? And what am I not going to make the same mistake again? And can I do better? And I think it's great to come onto these podcasts and make it all sound like it's roses and it's not. Um, but I think it is measured approaches. So I think entrepreneurs, and I will say this, especially the female founders I come across seem to be really good at beating themselves up and really good at, um, going on about why they never got their sale from two years ago, but not actually saying how brilliantly they've done because they got this amazing sale yesterday and actually how much they've learned from what went wrong with that pitch and what they're doing right now. And I think it's what I always say, and I still don't get right, is it's giving the really tough moments the same space in your head as the really good moments. Because I think it's just human nature that we don't seem to acknowledge the highs and the really good times as much as we do the lows. And that's really tough when you are alone as an entrepreneur. And so the last question I'll, I'll ask you about the journey that you've just been on is this. There's somebody listening to this sitting at their kitchen table. They've got a background in food, they love food, and they've got a great idea for an app. What's your advice to them? I would say, speak to people and not your friends and family if it's a really good idea go to an event and pitch it to someone in over a drink and have a complete stranger or at least five complete strangers turn around to you and say wow that's desperately needed that solves this problem and i would buy it or use it um and just make sure and i say this to everyone because we're very much tech for good is if it's a great idea, it needs to be solving an actual problem. And you need to be aware of how many people it's solving that problem for. There are amazing ideas out there and things that you could build, but if they're not solving a problem, they just don't seem to be getting as much traction in the current climate as, as other types of tech. And um, talking of current climate, we're obviously in the middle of the COVID pandemic. How's that affected your business? We've been lucky in the fact that we did pivot. So 65% of our business is in healthcare. So hospitals and care homes have been going the whole way through and we've been able to support them, which has been fantastic. And then we are lucky enough to have a product that allows for the order at table or the click and collect that most people will know that allows for social distancing. So we're actually picking up business again and growing. Um, and we've also had time as a company for the first time ever to regroup um, think about our strategy, think about what we want to do. So it's been tough. I think a lot of the team have really struggled working from home solidly for three months when we're quite a social team. Um, but as a company, I think we're lucky in the fact that we have weathered through it better, better than most, mainly because we have a, a diversified client group. And how have you found working from home? Um, I must say I'm, I'm lucky. I love it. I think the dog is, is over me by now. Um, but I think for me, it's the first time where I realized how out of sync my work-life balance was. Um, and actually now taking away the things that I've been doing during lockdown that I think I'm going to implement into my everyday life as we come out of it, um, to just get more of that work-life balance. It's been a great reset for me as to what's important and what I want to get, not just out of Kafoodle, but also out of my day-to-day -day life. 
And looking at the, um, the hospitality industry, how do you think that might change after COVID? I honestly am waiting and seeing the, 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 these words, the new normal, um, do really worry me. Um, I, think, I think technology, not just our technology, but all types of technology will be used a lot more. Uh, I do think just, unfortunately, a lot of businesses aren't going to come back. I mean, I do know a few of my clients who've taken early retirement or who are just not reopening their doors. Um, so I think the high streets might look very different for quite a while. Um, but I think it's it's really resilient. I mean, the guy, I, I love the fact that I can order Sunday roast or go pick it up on my local and eat it at home. And a lot of the places are going to carry on doing that. So I think there will be a few different ways that we think about hospitality and food. Um, but I think especially in the UK, we're a, we're a restaurant and pub culture. I think we will, be, we will be back in pubs having drinks and back in restaurants enjoying our food. And I think we're lucky that the, the industry will bounce back because food is social and you know, it's an experience. It's, it's not just about the food and it hasn't been just about the food for quite some time. So I think hospitality is perfectly positioned to come back and innovate and do interesting things that will encourage the consumers back into their venues. That's good to hear. Um, and I have a few uh, final quick questions for you. Uh, which piece of music, when you listen to it, makes you feel happiest? I am very into jazz. I used to work in a jazz bar and I think jazz just reminds me of really good times and a good, a good cognac. So I think um, it's my, it's my go-to music. And if you had to nominate one person uh, to sit down and do the workplace happiness survey, who would you pick and why? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, so I would probably uh, recommend one of my female founder friends, um, which I'll name, Laura Mott. Um, I think uh, she runs a quality improvement in the NHS. I think it's been really tough for companies like that who've been literally used as punching bags um, in the NHS for the last few months. And I think taking a step back to remember why you do it and what happiness is to you is a, is a really good exercise and I would encourage anyone listening to this it literally takes five or six minutes you get a great dashboard at the end and we don't often do gratitude enough and I think it's, it's a great exercise to just remember why you're doing what you're doing and actually how happy you really are even if you don't acknowledge that on a daily basis. On that note um, can I thank you very very much for coming onto the podcast for sharing your amazing story from growing up in South Africa and uh, getting a love of food there to coming across the UK um, to doing so well and then to set up Cafoodle. Uh, uh, um, I wish you every success, Taryn. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.